Welcome to Life of the School, episode 21. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew. I'm a biology teacher from Acton Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode on Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get into the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what do they hope for the future. This episode, I sit down with Chris Baker. Chris is a teacher at Hatborough Horsham High School in Horsham, Pennsylvania. Chris primarily teaches anatomy and physiology, focusing on the medical aspects of human anatomy and physiology by preparing students to apply their skills to patient assessment and treatment. His approach is to give students a taste of what is to come in nursing and medical school through lectures, dissections, and case studies. Additionally, Chris works part-time as a paramedic, applying his knowledge of anatomy and physiology in the field. Chris can be found actively engaged on Twitter in many chats, including hashtag SlowANPChat, which he founded. You can follow his activity on Twitter at BakerHHHS. Welcome, Chris. Ah, Thank you, Aaron. Thank you for having me today. Great. Uh, I was glad that you could join me. I understand that your, uh, your Saturday was quite full. Um, and so we're meeting on a Sunday. Uh, so as it was yesterday, did you include a little, uh, a little work in your, um, your outside job, your part-time job yesterday? Yeah. Yeah. Yesterday was a little, uh, busy. My son, uh, we have, uh, two, uh, two kids, uh, Ryan's 13, Caitlin's 15, and they're both pretty musical. So Ryan had his, uh, his, uh, uh, recital, uh, both uh, individual recital and ensemble uh, throughout the day yesterday. So that was kind of long. And then I worked a uh, night shift last night, uh, 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. Um, but luckily, fortunately, it wasn't uh, wasn't bad at all. It was actually a really cake shift. I wish I had more of those like that. Awesome. So I'm, uh, I'm totally good to go today. That's good. Good. Yeah. So this is going to be our mid-April episode, and we're on the, the last few days of March that we're recording this. So I don't know how cold it is there. Uh, you still getting the winter feel in Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's a little chilly out. Like, uh, it's not a great, great day for yard work. Uh, you're in Massachusetts, right? Yep, up in Massachusetts. We're down in the Philly, uh, Philly suburbs, and it's, I don't know, 50 or so out there, cloudy, kind of dreary. So, actually, I'd much rather be inside uh, <laughs> talking to you or uh, fixing uh, plumbing problems and drywalling <laughs> or whatnot. So, it's a good day to be inside. Yeah, it's good. All right, so uh, let me uh, let me get you into the the first uh, first question, um, which I like to start with everyone, which is like, how did you become a, a science teacher? What brought you into the classroom? Wow. Um, so that's a uh, that's kind of a long uh, long convoluted path. Uh, so if you'll bear with me, uh, it was actually back in high school. Um, I went through four years of high school uh, knowing I was going to be a, a documentary photographer or a, a photojournalist, uh, guaranteed it, uh, went to um, applied to a college and got into Drexel for um, for uh, their photography program. Um, and uh, it was in high school. Um, it was in December, I want to say, December or January, I want to say it was December. And one of my high school buddies was killed in a car wreck. Um, he uh, hit a patch of black ice. Uh, crossed over the double yellow line and uh, hit a dump truck. And uh, so he was subsequently killed. And I thought, well, you know, um, I really don't know what to do if somebody, if I come across something like that. So I thought, well, I should probably take a first aid course. So while I was at Drexel uh, in a photojournalism program, I looked up first aid courses 
And I ended up taking uh, an EMT course, an emergency medical technician course, um, more than a first aid course. It's, it was a pretty involved course at the Community College of Philadelphia. I liked that so much, I started volunteering uh, back at home on the weekends. I lived in the suburbs of Philly too, so I'd take the train, train and volunteer on the weekends. Um, and I liked that so much, and I actually, at the beginning of senior year, um, had such a strong dislike for college uh, that, for lack of a better term, I dropped out of college senior year for a semester, um, intending to take a break. It did turn out to be a break. Um, so I left college and worked full time as an EMT. Loved that so much. I became a paramedic, went to the paramedic academy, and uh, my coworkers kept on saying, "You know, you really should. Uh, you really should teach. You really should. You've got a knack for making things simple, for taking all these complex um, concepts and really making them simple." And at the time, I was working at the University of Pennsylvania in their Department of Emergency Medicine, and they had a uh, reimbursement um, uh, program for uh, college tuition. So I thought, well, you know what? Actually, yeah, I'm going to go back to college. So I reapplied to Drexel. Mm -hmm. At this point, this is in the, uh, what, the late 90s. Uh, so we're talking, what, six years, six years later or so. And um, they, uh, I was much more mature. I knew what I wanted to do. So I went back to Drexel, got my biological sciences bachelor's and my teaching certificate. And uh, that led me in a, that led me to teaching. Wow. Well, that is a, you're absolutely right. That is an interesting <laughs> path into the classroom. Um, it makes me, you know, it makes me think so much about, you know, the decisions that our kids, our kids make. And I'm sure where you are right now, your kids, you know, your seniors are hearing all of the, you know, who's getting into where and, and the juniors are all, um, you know, nervously watching their older friends get into college and they're thinking about it and there's such certainty uh, about where they want to go and what they want to do um and, you know not by everybody but there's some students who project at this this degree of certainty that like oh yeah i'm gonna go to this place and this is where i'm gonna be and you know they have their 10-year plans and i don't mean to say that there's anything wrong with that but um you change so much as a person uh, between 17 18 and 19 and 20 and 21 and you know you think about the person you are at at you know 17 18 versus the person you are at 21 22 you, you really do go through so many changes you experience so much um you know i i don't know how to frame that conversation with kids without sounding condescending um you know well i i tell them it's okay if you want to know if you know what you want to do you have this plan hey great go for it and it's the ones that don't know what they want to do. I think they're actually very frustrated because they see, as you said, their friends are going away to college and they definitely want to do X, Y, Z and they've got their whole life planned out. And these kids don't know kids are, I mean, I teach seven, 16, 17, 18 year olds. Um, they're, they're young adults. They, uh, they get very frustrated because they see their friends with this path and they don't know what, they don't know, you know, what they're interested in. They don't know what to do. And I tell them, you know what, that's fine. That is fine. That's, uh, you know, uh, that's what the workforce uh, is for. That's what college is for, albeit pretty expensive. Um, it is nice to have some sort of an idea of what you want to do while you're in high school, while it's um, free if you go to public school. <laughs> um, and that's what I tell them. I said, I tell them as sophomores or juniors, branch out there, take something you might not be, you know, familiar with in high school. You might be interested in it, and that might take you to the next level. Um, and I, I, I tell them all the time, it's okay if you don't know what you're doing. Um, I didn't. I was the opposite. I knew what I was doing. I knew what I wanted to do. And that changed. And, um, you know, I don't regret, I don't have a single regret as far as my career path. I would have done it all over again. Um, I wouldn't be in the classroom if I hadn't, if I kept on with uh, photography. 
Yeah. yeah, it's 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 a I think it's a good story to you know to tell our individual stories, or it's a good path to tell our individual stories to kids so they understand. You know, it's good to have a plan, but it's also good to be flexible on that plan and understand that um, things change, including yourself. You will change as you're on this path, and um, be open to new opportunities uh, as you as you as you see them, and um, and don't get so caught up on that destination that you've got locked in your head. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, this uh, this sort of I think t- does dovetail nicely into the the next question I had for you. Um, one of the things I you know I always do my internet stalking before I do my uh, my calls to people, <laughs> and uh, in my internet stalking of you, I found an article from uh, a Philadelphia news sta- station from uh, like a year or two ago where they were talking about using smartphones in the classroom. And I I know from you know Twitter and and various other places you you really use technology quite a bit in your classroom. Um, so I, I'm kind of curious, how did your view of the use of technology in school uh, evolve over the years? Because I, I certainly know that when you started out, uh, there weren't smartphones and, you know, Google and Twitter and all that stuff, when, you know, when you started teaching. So how has it evolved um, over time? Well, it's funny. It's actually kind of gone like a pendulum, swung one way, swung the other way, and I'm currently kind of in the middle. So when I started teaching, it was about 10 years ago in uh, in 06. Um, 06, I started at Hapro Horsham. It was my first full-time uh, teaching uh, job. They hired me as a long-term sub uh, second semester, and, they, um, and it was an opening, so I got hired um, for a contract position. And about a year later, I was teaching bio, and um, one of the, uh, the, my department chair and I, we decided that the, um, the kids that were having trouble, um, the, like not at-risk kids, but there were kids that were having trouble in some of the lower-level bio classes, and we thought, and we had a grant. Uh, we got a whole bunch of computers in, in Pennsylvania, a whole bunch of laptops. And we thought at the time, hey, wouldn't that be great? These kids are always on their phones. They love technology. They're playing Xbox and and um, and we and all that. Put a computer in front of them. The learning is going to be fantastic. They're going to love it. So we spent hours and days, and we were up till one o'clock every morning revising the curriculum, and it totally bombed. Uh, it was uh, it was a disaster as far as. Um, as far as the students really weren't that engaged, um, it really wasn't that interesting for them. There were all kinds of tech issues. Um, so that kind of left a sort of bitter taste in my mouth for a while. Um, I've swung by, I've swung back and forth a couple of times, but right now um, I really need, I really want students to use technology if it's going to help them learn. Um, I don't use technology for the sake of, um, for the sake of using tech. Um, we were um, a, one of the six one-to-one pilot teachers um, in our high school building this year. Um, next uh, next year, we're planning to deploy one-to-one um, devices, and there are a couple of devices that we're field testing now. And I told the I told the administrators, um, I said, that's great. You know, I really appreciate being um, one of those teachers, but I'm not going to center my lessons around uh, technology. I don't want the kids to be sitting in front of their laptops or Chromebooks or whatever it is 24 seven. It's just not my style. Um, I don't think it's that, that effective for me. So, um, so right now uh, the uh, students can bring in, um, I don't confiscate phones or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, I do know some of my colleagues have, uh, it's like the, those shoe, uh, those <laughs> shoe pocket things that you hang yep. from the back of a door, uh, they've got those for cell phones. And if that works for them, great. Uh, personally, it makes me cringe to be honest with you. Um, 
the way I look at it is I teach 16, 17, 18 year olds. They're going to be paying $70,000 a year next year to go to college. Um, if they better learn their responsibility now, Con and in my view, confiscating phones, um, really it, it's, it takes a lot of time, a lot of energy. Um, and if they want to use their phones for something educational, great. Even if it's not educational, you know what? It's better they learn it now while they're, um, they're in high school for free than, um, than learn a tough lesson in college. So uh, to get back to your question, I, um, they use their cell phones um, just about every day when we dissect. They take video, they take pictures. Uh, it's, some of the students make their Google Slides presentations strictly on their phones. They don't have to upload their pictures to the drive or anything. They do everything on their phones. So I think, um, uh, I think phone, I think tech has come a long way. I think um, my students use it pretty effectively. Um, in addition, we do some case studies where I provide them with a, a fictional patient scenario and I give them a little bit of information at a time and they have to ask the right questions at the right time in order for um, either me or the student who's pretending to be the patient who's pre-programmed to give them any information. So at times I'll, I'll say the patient's on XYZ medication and the students will look at me and now they know, quick, whip out your phone, look up that medication and they can figure out what the medical problem of the patient is based on the medication generally. Yeah. So yeah. that's pretty much the way uh, we use tech in the, in the classroom. That's, that's great. I think you mentioned a really interesting thing, you know, when you're starting rolling out was the engagement piece. Um, you know, it's not a, it's not a magic bullet <laughs> just because you use technology doesn't mean that it's an engaging use. Um, and for me, when I think of students who are, uh, and this, I, I had a, a sort of a switch on this a few years ago when, um, you know, I noticed, you know, I'd have, I have one class in particular, I felt like, you know, they were taking their phones out, you know, sliding their phones out and I'd be like, oh man, I'm frustrating that they're taking their phones out. And I, I didn't realize it was like, man, I'm boring. Um, I'm boring them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I am not, I have not captured their attention. This, that what I've been doing today, they are, they're not being rude. They're being teenagers. And what they're telling me and the signal that they're telling me is I have not captured their attention enough that they have drifted off. Um, exactly. And so I, I think w the way you described it, like I have my kids now and I, you know, most of my kids, it's a pretty high level, uh, students that I have, uh, you know, they're, it's not to say none of them pull their phone out because there certainly are kids who I can see them under the desk every once in a while. My assumption for them is if it's one or two kids who are doing this, there's something going on with that kid. Like something is outside their life, outside their world, really compelling. Particularly if it's a, you know, out of line of what they normally do. And, you know, I might pull them aside and say, everything okay. You know, you know, need to, I may have a talk with them just to sort of check out. And then if, you know, they're being rude, <laughs> I'll call them on it. But most of the time, the ki the one or two kid who's doing that, you know, that's because there's something more pressing. And you just got to understand their lives are more complicated than, you know, what we, we might want for them, which is that they're present and, and ready to engage 100% with us. I, I think we lose sight of that a lot, um, it, that they've got a lot of stuff going on at home or socially or with sports or whatnot. It's not that they don't, they can't really check their emotions, check their issues or baggage for lack of a better term positive or negative baggage when they walk in the door it's um it's kind of our job to check our baggage as instructors when we walk in the door but uh it's hard for them to do it and i totally uh, i totally agree with you um totally get it uh, you know it's tough for us to shut that, that social media switch too um sitting in the faculty meeting i mean um our faculty meetings over the years have gotten a lot more relevant and a lot more interesting but back in the day it was like you know 
Okay. Um, you know, make sure the brightness on your uh, brightness on your phone's down so it doesn't reflect on your face when you're in a faculty meeting <laughs> in the auditorium. Uh, so as adults, we have trouble doing it too. So, um, you know, I don't blame them. But I totally agree. It's like if they, if we, if the more engaging we are, the more the more interesting we are, the more involved the students are, the less they're going to be doing whatever on their, you know, yeah, on their phones. Yeah, cool. So building off of that, one of the things that you, I, you know, I, I saw that you went to one of the Ed Camp. Uh, EdCamp talks. You went to EdCamp Philly, um, and EdCamp's sort of interesting to me. I like. I don't. I don't know how long they've been around, but suddenly this past year they've been popping up everywhere. I see people going to them all over the place, and um, I saw that the EdCamp. There's another EdCamp Philly coming up. I'm, I've never attended one of these things. Um, I think you sort of alluded to faculty meetings and how faculty meetings can be like boring, top-down, uh, you know, presentations. I feel a lot of professional development we get in schools can sometimes have that feeling of of that. So I guess my question is sort of what is your impression of the Ed Camp model? Because in my impression, it's supposed to be something that's very different than that old school PD. Oh, it's way different, and and our administrators are recognizing that. That's why they're making our faculty meetings a lot more relevant and a lot more teacher based. Instead of them talking at us, it's teachers, teacher experts facilitating group discussions or learning uh, our new learning management system. We uh, we uh, uh, bought into Canvas, and we're using Canvas now. So a lot of our faculty meetings are stu- are teacher um, teacher or committee led. Um, but uh, oh, if you, if you haven't attended that an ed camp, you uh, you have to go. Um, they're fantastic. Uh, I want to say they've been around for about 10 years or so. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, I'm really poor in history. Um, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, I think Ed Camp Philly was one of the first, if not the first. Um, so they're all over the country, actually all over the world. Um, and base, the basic premise is it's not sit and get professional development. Um, so you basically, you register for free, you show up and it's generally, um, a donated space, like a high school or some sort of, some sort of school where you, you meet. And it's the, it's the oddest thing. The very first, um, the very first ed camp I went to, I think was, no, I want to say it was ed camp garden state in Collingswood, New Jersey. Um, it, it's the oddest thing. You show up with hundred, 200, 300 people. You don't know anybody. They have coffee, donuts, danishes, all that up. So you're you're finding a table in the cafeteria and you're eating and you're meeting people. And what happens is they give you the rules. And the rules are this: that there are no presentations. There's no canned presentations. There are no uh, there are no vendors. Uh, it's 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 um, it's all built from student. Uh, it's all built from teacher, sometimes students, student teachers, administrators, um, uh, interest. So let's say, for example, you're interested in, um, oh, let, let's pick something that you're interested in. What are you interested in learning about as a teacher to make you more effective teacher? Um, so, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this because um, the NSTA coming up and I'm going to go out there. And so um, I, I'm going to put uh, something that I do quite a bit, uh, like formative assessment. I do formative assessment, and I have some picture of what that is, but I'd like to see sort of a little bit more diversity. Like, what do, what do people do for formative assessment? Perfect example. So let's say we're all going to an ad camp. And there are a couple coming up locally. I'm sure there are some out by you. Um, so you, while you're having breakfast, you go up, and there's a big board up. And uh, the board uh, the board has, uh, as you go from left to right, it has uh, classroom numbers. So where, you, where you're going to meet. So there might be 10, 20 different classrooms. Top to bottom, they've got basically four time slots. And they're about 45 minutes to an hour apiece with a break for break for lunch. So what you do is you jot down a little on a post-it that you 
you're interested in formative assessment and you put your name down, usually your Twitter handle, and um, they will, the organizers will grab that post-it and usually recopy it and put it on a big post-it up on the board at a certain time and a certain room number. And there's also an electronic copy they use as a Google Doc. They make a Google Doc of it so you can see it on your phone or, or whatnot, your device. And um, once the whole board is filled, uh, you take a look at the board and you say, oh, wow. Aaron's facilitating a section a session on uh, formative assessment. That's really interesting. I think I want to go there. So you go to room A113 or whatever from 11 to 12, and anybody um, interested in formative assessment goes into the room. And just because your name is on the post-it doesn't mean that you're the expert. It simply means that you're interested in it. So um, it's basically a round table discussion. People bring their devices, their laptops, Chromebooks, iPads, and they always have a projector up and turned on. Um, and people kind of take turns plugging in their laptops, showing different things if they if they have it on a computer or verbalizing. Um, and it's great. It's a great discussion. They're really rich discussions. Uh, nobody really monopolizes the uh, the discussion. Um, and next thing you know, the hour, 45 minutes or the hour has gone by and wow, you're on to the next session. Um, there's also the rule of two feet and it's a really nice rule. So if you go into a session thinking that's on formative assessment, uh, maybe a, a basic formative assessment and it's too advanced for you or it's something that you don't, you're not that interested in, you just get up and leave and everybody in the room knows it. Everybody knows in a, that it's not rude. It's not disrespectful. Mm -hmm. uh, there are always people coming in in the middle of a session, leaving in the middle of a session. Um, because face it, it's your time. You're donating. It's usually a Saturday. Uh, it's your time. You're donating your personal time away from your family. You might as well get the most bang for your buck. Um, I would say hands down unequivocally that EdCamps and Twitter are the two most phenomenal professional development delivery devices, however you want to call it, uh, media, um, hands down that I've had in 10 years. Wow. We've had some really good speakers at school, but that's just kind of it. They're speakers. They're speaking at you. Um, hands down, I just – I would when you get done the interview, I would get online. I'd look for the closest <laughs> ed camp, and uh, you can register usually up until a week in advance. Um, phenomenal. All right. Definitely have to put ed camp on my list. Uh, of possible uh, possible things. It sounds like a, I went to uh, a workshop, gosh, it was probably three or four years ago, and um, it was a bunch of uh, veterans who had gone through uh, the BioBuilder workshops before, and so we all learned the, the basics. And um, uh, the person who, who runs uh, BioBuilder uh, deemed it an, um, an unconference was the term that she used. And I said the EdCamp model has always sounded like that. It's that there's no, yeah. there's no in addition, you know, beginning, there's just time slots and that sort of thing. And just like you said, the first session, this was much a smaller group. So, um, but you know, we have these blocks of time, you know, we've got these morning sessions, these afternoon sessions uh, over a couple of days and, you know, let's brainstorm out possible ideas and then, and collate them into them and then some free work time to, to, to build some products as a result. And this was over a couple of days. Um, and that's, that's very much how we structured it. So it sounds like this is a sort of a one day version of what I went through in the unconference. Yeah, it is a one day. Sometimes, sometimes it's only uh, up until one o'clock in the afternoon. Some days it's eight to four, mm -hmm. um, some camps and they do have some sponsors that donate. Like, um, the last one I went to was, uh, it was in Audubon, New Jersey, and they donated uh, an Amazon. They donated a, what a, a, a Kindle, uh, two Chromebooks. Uh, it was like a raffle kind of a thing. 
Um, so it, it is pretty cool. It's a great, um, and, the, and really the thing is that there's so much energy because everybody's there on a Saturday morning, eight o'clock in the morning, starting off bleary eyed, but you know that they're there because they want to be there, not because they have to be there. And that's the, that's the big difference. They want to be there. I want to be there. Um, it's really synergistic. That's cool. Yeah, I can, I can see also how, you know, I, I talk to people who organize like state conferences and that sort of thing. Um, and sometimes they struggle with topics um, and coming up with the right idea. And I wonder if maybe trying, a, you know, trying an ed camp version of that for a specific group like the Massachusetts Association of Biology Teachers, you know, which I just went to their their annual conference. And, you know, maybe taking that that ed camp approach um, to something like that, even with a narrower focus, like a narrower group. Um, mm -hmm. might even work um, to, to generate some of those ideas. So, oh, totally, totally. Yeah, very cool. All right, so we're, we'll stay on PD because I think uh, that's the other the other thing that theme that I had brought out, and I I think it's funny just because you, the your you have been tweeting at and with colleagues um, about uh, the hack learning series, uh, mm -hmm. hack learning series books, and I I read my first one. I, I'm trying to. I think mine was. Uh, I want to say it was the assessment book. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna check my Kindle right now because uh, because uh, <laughs> I think that I was I, that's the one that I read uh, recently. Uh, and yeah, I, you know, when I read it, it was very much. Um, I often describe it as like escapist fiction uh, because I felt like it described a classroom that wasn't. Yeah, it was hacking assessment. It it described mm -hmm. classrooms that were so different from where I teach, even though philosophically it was so much with what I agree with. Uh, and I know that you've been lately talking quite about uh, quite a bit about that online. So, you know, what have you read from this hack learning series, and sort of how how does it fit into your thinking about teaching and learning? Well, actually, the one that you read, hacking assessment, is next on my teacher uh, reading list. Um, I just finished uh, hacking homework. That's by Star Sackenstein and Connie Hamilton. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me, and. Um, the big take-home message I got out of that book it actually reaffirmed a lot of what I think. I, you know, we have a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old at home, and the with the 13-year-old especially, um, the amount of homework that he gets and the amount of low, hmm, how can I put this, low quality, high volume homework he gets is astounding. Um, so really, reading that book, it really uh, it really hit home and really reaffirmed that if you're going to give homework, which some people like Alice Keeler is a huge uh, advocate for no homework whatsoever, um, because even though I'm not a researcher, there's really there's it looks like there's pretty good evidence out there that homework at the younger ages can really be detrimental in elementary, middle is questionable, and high school is marginal. So I've been. Uh, for the past few years, I still give homework, but it's a preview of what we're doing the next day. Um, and I realize it doesn't work a lot for a lot of classrooms. Like, for example, maybe the math teacher, it, mm, it might work for them to learn a concept during the day and then at night do practice problems. Yeah. But I see the problem with that at home, though. When my son is trying to do math homework, um, I turn into a math teacher. I turn into a bio teacher. I turn into really not social studies, but um, because if the, if the work they're given to do for homework if they can't get through it, if they can't figure it out on their own, they don't have that many resources to turn to. Um, the argument could be made while well, they've got the book or there's the online text or whatnot. Um, but I see so much frustration on my son's part doing homework and I see that. So um, I give homework as a preview of, hey, this is what we're doing tomorrow, um, especially the low level stuff. Here's the low level stuff. I, I give my students the slides ahead of time. Um, 
using our learning management system, they have access to all the, the Google slides um, that I use for that whole whole chapter. So they have the slides. Um, a few, about a year and a half ago, I started flipping my classroom uh, into video. So whereas I normally would do a 40 minute, we're on the block schedule. So we've got about what, 75 minutes per class. I'd spend 40 minutes of it lecturing. Oh. And it was like, it was brutal. Yeah. It was brutal. Um, I'd only interact with a couple students out of the 25 or 30 I had in front of me. Some of them were really good interactive discussion, but I'd lose the majority of them. So I finally hopped on the uh, flipping bandwagon and um, started to uh, make little micro videos um, and uh, took the lecture slides and flipped those to video. So now the students, as a preview of what we're doing the next day, is they read the textbook and they um, take some notes. I have some guided notes I give them and watch a three to eight minute video, take some notes on that, come in. And I some days I simply ask them, do you have any questions? And if the answer is no, then we move on. Um, there are practice quizzes I have too online that they can practice. Um, but basically, the, I really reaffirm that homework needs to be useful and it needs to really help the student. Um, so that was, uh, that's, that was the big take home message from hacking homework. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know, I I know what you're saying, and I have, um, you know, my my oldest is is just about to turn 14, so 13 year old, 14, eighth grade, um, same same deal. And I think the 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 question or the the words that I would look at, and the same thing, I have a, an elementary student. The question you have about the homework is, you know, what's the impact of the homework, um, and whether or not the homework is is relevant, even the homework assignments that I give, I can say yes, this homework is completely relevant, but if it's able to be done in a, by a student as busy work, meaning that they can turn themselves into a low engagement method on their homework and just get through it to get through it. It's a checkbox task. Um, mm -hmm. That makes me, that drives me crazy because what it means is that even though I'm not trying to give busy work homework, I am give, giving busy work homework, um, even if that's not my intent. And it makes me think quite a bit about how do we how do we structure it? Um, a lot of what you've been saying, I've I've been similar. I think I'm behind you in terms of the flip homework, but I, I'm in a similar space uh, in terms of thinking about the relevance and how do you use it as a foreshadow so that students are prepped and ready mm -hmm. to come in. Um, I think particularly for my my entry level bio class, I would like to I'd like to move to a menu version of it. So it'd be like, all right, so here's the learning objectives that we're going to be going over next class. So I'd like you to do this homework, but you could choose. I have this video or mm -hmm. we have these textbook outline sections, or you could go and do this other task and like really almost have like a menu. So I could say, here are the learning objectives we're going to cover on Tuesday. And here are, here are two or three ways you can prep yourself for that class. So if I decide to check homework, I'm going to check for a product of one of these three things and you choose like i'm not mm -hmm. going to tell you that you know maybe you don't have time to lug your textbook with you because you got to go on a you got to go to a, an away game and you're going to be on the bus so you got your phone you know pop on yeah. youtube on your phone and and take the notes on your phone um on the bus and that will work well for you there because that's it's mobile and it's it's with you um or maybe you take the online quiz that i got posted um and maybe that's the way and i i do feel like i hit um, you know, especially again, roll, roll back the clock to a couple of years ago, I was hitting the same notes. It'd be a case of I'm assigning homework and then I'm lecturing in class and then maybe I'm doing a confirmational activity. 
and I've hit the same learning objective three different times. And so what that gave my student permission to do is not really check in on one activity or maybe not check into two. So I trained them to be able to selectively check in and out of homework, selectively Mm -hmm. check in and out of classwork, (laughs) selectively check in and out on the activities. And so maybe at the end of the unit, they're like, man, I don't really know any of these learning objectives. But that's because I, through redundancy, allowed them to learn how to check out of things, um, not be present. Uh, I'm torn at times though, because, and I hate the, I, I hate the answer that's that's very commonly given. Why are you doing X, Y, Z? Well, because that's the way it's going to be in college next year for them. Um, I really hate that thinking. But on the other hand, I, I tell my guys, I'm like, you know what? You could you could get through the course, not get through. You could be very successful in my anatomy physiology course if you simply watch the videos and took notes. But then it's going to hit you like a sledgehammer in the face freshman year when they when you have a what four five inch thick textbook (laughs) that they're going to make you read and you're going to do a chapter a week or two chapters a week or whatnot so i explain to them like part of part of what i teach yeah it's anatomy and physiology but i you know i teach students and i teach them i want them to to be successful later in life as well um not just not monetarily successful but just i want them to do well so i tell them you you really need to get used to reading a difficult college textbook and interpreting it, getting the vital information out and summarizing it somehow. So I give them the option and I I don't know what the answer is, but I give them the option of using the textbook or the video or both. And I think some of my more successful students have said, I know they've said, yeah, Mr. Baker, I do the reading at night. And then um, in the morning, I'll watch the quick five minute video and the two of them together. And then if I have a chance, I'll do the online quiz and I can do that however many times uh, it, um, they can take it five, 10 times if they want. Um, and that's, that's why I'm doing so well in your class. Um, so I think that the videos are great, but I'm scared that it does some of the students a disservice if they use them as a crutch. Yeah. And you also, I mean, what you just described also makes me a little concerned in terms of, of time. Um, you know, my, you know, we, you think of the high flying students and the ones who are taking multiple APs and, and overload their schedule. Um, some of the times, you know, I will make an optional and I did this earlier this, this year. Um, we got into a little bit of a time crunch. Um, and so I made possibly one of the world's worst flipped videos, um, to summarize like a section of, of class, but I, I threw it together and I threw it together in a, in a single evening. Um, I didn't really put much planning into it, but I put something together that basically gave my kids the option. We had a bunch of textbook stuff and I wanted to basically provide them another opportunity. If they didn't have the time to do all of that textbook, I wanted to make a smaller Mm -hmm. bite-sized piece for them. Um, and I did it specifically with their time constraints in mind what they what they would do and i i basically said some of you guys yeah i know you get a lot out of the textbook i'm not gonna tell you don't do the textbook but what i want you to do is i want you to have the option i only want Mm -hmm. you doing one either do the textbook outlines but here's this other option and i'll accept them for equal credit so it was a little bit of an experiment and the number of my kids who did both of them and then tacked on that so like i was worried about their time constraints and then they did them both and so it's that overload student you know that I, i worry about their time we see that we I can't tell you how many conversations I have a week with students that are just they're at the breaking point because they're taking they're under so much pressure to take AP. You know, I'm not saying they can't handle it, but there comes a point where they have to sit back and really look at it and say, you know, this is like this is affecting me mentally. It's affecting my health. Um, they're under so much stress. So I do. I totally agree. That's a great option to give them. Um, 
and that's one of the reasons I started flipping. It was last year. I did. Um, I tried out 20% time, genius hour, whatever you want to call it, with my anatomy class, and that's a whole other discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a whole other. <laughs> um, it went. It went quasi well, but there were a whole slew of problems and issues with that. But anyhow, we got to the end of the semester, and I'm like, wow, we are out of time. So exactly as you did. I, uh, and coincidentally, we were, we were testing out um, Canvas. Actually, I think we did have, we went with Canvas and I jumped right into it. I made a bunch of videos. They weren't fantastic. I hosted them on Canvas um, and uh, I've never looked back since I, that's when I started flipping videos. I've, I've never looked back. But um, yeah, they are, they're a huge time saver. And the kids will tell me, they'll, they'll, they'll sit there in front of a, they'll sit there before a test, a couple minutes before a test, and they'll put their earbuds in with their phones. And I'll watch a they'll watch a quick five minute video of something they had trouble with. Yeah, yeah, I I love it if they're that's how they're using it that that extra review that extra check in. Um, I do worry about the kids. Um, the the overloaded kid, um, and it's not something I've really thought about until this year. But when I tried to provide options to reduce the load, what I found is providing the option the kids who don't know how to reduce the load were actually just adding more time in. So they, mm. they're, they're not filtering. And so it's, I, I, you know, the answer probably is that we have to teach them those skills better. And it's not just going to be one teacher. It's going to be a large across the board, you know, K through 12 at home, at school, you know, helping our students um, learn that life skill. But it does make, it did give me pause. It was the first time in this, this move towards the flip move towards the other things where I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to provide them options where I was like, nope, I'm not reducing the time. I'm, I'm now giving them another set of resources. And looking back on it, I do online quizzes that kids can take for mastery. Um, and I got kids who will take these quizzes that are capped at a 10 minute quiz. Um, we use uh, a Moodle as our, our LMS. I'll have kids who will take them like 15, 20 times a single quiz and we'll do two or three of them. Now, most of my kids aren't like that. I think the average student takes it uh, three to four times uh, with a couple of kids who take them barely once and <laughs> get whatever grade mm -hmm. they are. And, uh, but other students will, will skew it up so that they're taking lots and lots of versions of them. And if they're doing that and they're getting something out of it, that's great. But I think sometimes there's almost like this perfectionist part of it where nine out of 10 should be good enough on that. Uh, I think that's sort of the, the way you get into the, the hacking assessment piece, the, the question about, uh, and this is something I'm wondering about, uh, Am I, are those quizzes tied enough to objectives to the point where are they getting a 9 out of 10 because there's a trick question somewhere in one of the quizzes and and so now I've got into a gotcha sense and you know how do I how do I engineer these so that they are tied tighter to the objectives and they're more in line and and those pieces it's, it's a lot of a lot of planning and thinking about how do we help the kids understand transparently what they really need to do and not feel like they have to do everything but filter to the point where they're doing so they can have the confidence that they know what they're doing no, I totally, I totally agree with you. And that's one of the reasons that I'm, I'm kind of, I took a step back from my course a couple of years ago. I totally blew the course apart. I just started from, I rewrote it from scratch. And I said, what do I want to, what do I want a student to be able to do 90 days after they walk in the door? And I think it's time for me to blow up the course again. Um, it's been about five, six years. I think it's time for me to blow it up again <laughs> because I'm really moving uh, towards um, a lot of my students want to go to or are going to nursing school or uh, want to become physical therapists, occupational therapists, athletic trainers, go to medical school. And um, so, yes, test taking is an important skill. Uh, oh, I hate to say that skill or uh, an important hurdle that they're going to have to, you know, learn how to overcome and 
be successful in. But I think more importantly, it's uh, like patient assessment. When you're presented with a really sick person in front of you, what are you going to do to fix them? How are you going to, um, how are you going to, to save their life? Um, and so I've been moving towards what we call a case study. Uh, I've been doing it for a couple of years now, but I've, um, but I've really um, moved towards doing case study case scenarios where um, students will walk in the door and I'll pluck one of them out in the hallway, say, hey, I'm going to borrow you for a couple minutes and I'll pre-program them with medical problems, what kind of medications are they on, and um, responses to questions that their peers should be asking. So instead of, instead of gauging, are they getting it by taking a quiz or a test, which we still, I'm still stuck in that rut. I still give quizzes. I still give tests like that. But this year for the first time, I think for, a, and it's been approved by administration, so I'm pretty excited. Um, I have their backing. I think I'm going to offer a practical um, scenario in lieu of maybe an essay on their final exam. So while they're going to have to do one or two essays, I think I'm gonna give them the option of uh, going in with a partner and I give them a scenario one-on-one, -on -one, a verbal scenario, and I lay all the equipment out that they may possibly want to use and they have to figure out what's wrong with the patient, um, what are their medical problems, what are their medications that they're on, what allergies do they have, and develop what we call a differential diagnosis. So mm -hmm. it could be this, 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 or this, and then narrow it down and form what's called a clinical impression. I think it's this, and then treat the patient. And that's, um, you know, I don't really like the term real world, but that's what happens. Like in when you when you're a physician, you're going to have sick patients in front of you. It's not going to be time to take a multiple choice test or quiz or whatever. It's this is like your back's against the wall. If you don't do the right thing in the next few minutes, your patient might die. Yeah. Um, so that's where I've been. That's where I've been moving to. Um, and in the future, that's where I want my classroom. You know, that's where I want my classroom to be. Yeah, I think I don't know. Do you know the podcast this week in parasitism? Uh, no. Okay. So I'll have to I'll have to add that link into the show notes. Um, so that's part of the this week in microbiology, this week in virology, like grouping. But uh, basically, that's what they do. They do a parasitology case study uh, most episodes. I don't know if they do it. They did it. We're doing it in the very beginning, but I know for the last year, uh, they have a doctor from New York City who sees patients both in New York City and then around the world. Um, and he, he does, he does a parasitology case study in every single episode. Um, oh, wow. and they post it at the end of the episode. Um, and then they read the email answers to people, uh, that the email in their guesses with differential. Some of them are just a guess. Yeah. You know, some people just say, Oh, it's a this, but they have a lot of medical students and practitioners who will do differentials. Uh, their differentials usually along parasitology, you know, lines because, you know, it's a, parasitology course so they will you know jump right to worms and they you know skip over yeah. some other other possible uh, options but uh, i think for what you're doing you might it might be uh, some nice little uh, distractors to throw in there um some of them are are really rare and obscure um but mm -hmm. some of i mean a lot of them even without looking up too much uh, if you know your basics, uh, particularly some of the early ones, if you know your basics on your, you know, your helmets and your various um, things, I think definitely some some interesting case studies that would come along. So uh, I, I'd recommend checking that out. Very cool. Very cool. Um, all right. So you, you mentioned twenty percent time genius hour. I I would be remiss if I didn't say. All right. You, take take two minutes and try to summarize what you mean by twenty percent time or genius hour. 
Well, it, it uh, let's see. It, I don't know when it all started, but Google, the organization Google, um, has a or has has or had uh, where they would allow one day a week. So you work five days a week, Monday through Friday. One day a week, the employees would come in, and I don't know if it was all in the same day. I would probably probably think not. Uh, one out of the five days, they would come in and they come into the office, and instead of working on a Google project, they'd work on a project uh, that of that really interested them that somehow would support the Google organization. So as a total, uh, it's, it's pre it was pretty much, hey, whatever you want to do, uh, as long as it has to do with Google, and we'll forward the, you know, we'll advance the company, come on in and do it. So um, I tried that with some of my students, and the, the thinking was every Friday, regardless of what was going on in the classroom, every Friday we would drop everything and they would work on a project that um, they were interested in. It had to do with anatomy and physiology, could be human, didn't have to be human. Um, and they would um, they'd research something that they were interested in and somehow present it, whether it was like a uh, in a, um, a, a slides, Google Slides, PowerPoint, video, uh, some sort of presentation kind of a thing. And they had to blog about it weekly, blog about their progress weekly. Um, so I kind of jumped into it a little too quickly, I guess. Um, and while some students really embraced it and really liked it, some students were really lost. They just didn't know what they wanted to do. Um, really nothing, um, nothing really grabbed them. And that was kind of a struggle was um, with me. Uh, you know, if I was given the opportunity, opportunity to do whatever I wanted, um, I could probably think of a hundred things I would want to do. Um, so it, was, it wasn't frustrating, but it kind of uh, boggled my mind and they couldn't think of, couldn't think of something. Um, the ones that did work on their projects, uh, it was tough because I had, maybe 20 kids that were working on projects, 2025, and I couldn't give them feedback um, fast enough. I couldn't give them good quality, formative feedback uh, that was fast enough. That was really frustrating too. So at the end of that semester, I, I actually felt like I failed on my students. Um, I, you know, I felt that I really didn't do a good job uh, guiding them. And, and um, so that was a little disappointing. I think I will revisit 20% time at some time, but I really need to do a lot more reading and research and poking around, asking questions, asking for help. Um, it was a good, you know, it was a good experience. I would suggest trying it, trying it or trying something like that, especially if it's out of a teacher's comfort zone. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm always trying new things, not for the sake of trying new things, but trying new things to try to improve the classroom, trying to make it a, make it a classroom where students want to come in. Um, kind of like the Dave Burgess uh, kind of um, teach like a pirate um, mantra where he wants his students to be lined up outside the door willing to pay money to come into his classroom. <laughs> um, and that's like, uh, if you haven't, I don't know if you've read Teach Like a Pirate, um, that book is, uh, that book's phenomenal. I'm actually in the middle of rereading it now for the second or third time. Yeah. Great book. I have, I have not read that one, but I have seen, I have seen references to it from several people, so interesting uh i'll add that to the add that to the long list of of books i need <laughs> my books i need to read great book yeah cool um yeah i i mean as you're saying that it was almost reminded me a little bit of our earlier conversation about you know um about ed camp so i mean i wonder if you could combine the philosophy of 20 percent time with almost like an ed camp model so rather than it being completely like every kid doing their own thing maybe you know, you could start it out almost ed camp like so that kids could have a couple of, you know, could they could brainstorm out options and and think and maybe they could even be sort of bucketed into a couple of different camps. Um, 
and even if they end up doing their own thing, then they have a, a, some cohorts that could maybe do peer support on projects that hit a theme as a, so like, so that they're working sort of collaboratively down roads. Um, you still might have the one or two outliers in there, but you could, from your perspective, narrow it down from, you know, 20 to 25 buckets in the classroom, maybe down to six or seven where, you know, it, it'd be a little easier for you to check in. So even if you could only get to two or three of them in a given week, you could set up a rotation that you could get to more kids in themes in a shorter window of time. Um, that's a really good idea so that's a really good idea so, yeah combine the two yeah i spent all of uh, about three or four seconds putting that together so um that's a prime example of like of why ed camps and twitter are fantastic professional development because if i wasn't having this conversation with you today on a sunday afternoon kind of a jury sunday afternoon outside <laughs> um i wouldn't have come up with that idea well i might have but it would take a lot longer yeah so. That's one reason I try to push teachers to get on the Twitter and and really share ideas. And it's not just about getting getting ideas from people. It's about sharing good stuff that's happening in our classrooms too. It's not it's not boasting. It's it's hey, this is what I'm doing. Can somebody else use it? Can somebody else improve on it? And you know, yeah, that happened with that's me. That's a on really Friday. good idea. That happened with me on Friday. I, I posted up sort of I'm in the mid process of putting together a a new transpiration lab, and I literally somebody who didn't follow me. Um, I, it was either, I don't know who it was. It was either Paul Strode or Lee Ferguson or somebody who liked it. Somebody who follows them saw my post and then asked me a couple of follow-up questions. Like it was just that sort of networking, you know, it's not somebody I know. Um, but they said, I, you know, oh yeah, I, I, I do this, but I'm a little dissatisfied. Can you tell me a little bit about it? And I was like, well, I was able to describe sort of where I was in process and, and this is sort of what my thinking was. And, you know, let me know if, you know, let me know if you have questions or feedback or, you know, what, whatever. But by them asking, I had to sort of formalize my statements a little more, which is good because on Monday I have to go to my class and sort of describe this to my kids. So yeah. having somebody outside the building ask that question was good for me because it helps me formalize those thoughts a little bit more. It, it's amazing how much more, um, much more interaction and collaboration I do with teachers, educators, administrators on Twitter than I do with folks in my own building. And it's not because I don't like the people in my building or the people, or it's not because I don't think they're, I don't value their opinions, but the way our schedule works, we don't have common prep um, very often with, with people that teach the same um, subject matter. So very often I find I get a lot more, um, a lot more advice and, and, have these good conversations from people I don't even know, or people I've met, like uh, I, communicate regularly with Lee or there's Jerry Marchand in the Chicago suburbs. He teaches anatomy and physiology. Uh, there are people from across the country. It's, it's, it's a really good networking tool. Yeah. Yeah. I've completely found that. And, um, I think, you know, Twitter was a little overwhelming at first, but I, I figured out this past, you know, year and a half or so how to use Twitter in this, in this particular way. And I, I, I couldn't agree more. All right, so we're we're wrapping up our our. We've talked, I think, about where, how you got in the classroom, what you're working on now. What are you looking forward to in the in the next couple of years? Uh, wow. I think I want to. Um, I'm always trying to improve. I'm always trying to. I'm never really satisfied with um with how I teach. Uh, it's not like those car commercials where you see the new and improved uh, 2017 Honda Accord. You know, rebuilt from the ground up. Well, 
I don't know why we'd want to rebuild something from the ground up. There's got to be something good in the last version. Um, so I try to improve stuff that I do. Um, I'm probably going to try to improve the quality of my videos. Um, try to tighten up the dissections. Right now, we tend to uh, are dissecting. We dissect the um, the rat. We start off with the rat because they're they're cheap and they're easy to learn on. And then we go to the fetal pig, which are more expensive. I need to tighten up the dissections. I need to figure out a way to dissect more quickly. Um, because we tend to get bogged down and very often we don't get to finish the pigs and we barely get to start the pigs. So um, in the future, I'd like to somehow figure out, cut away what might not be as important as I think it is right now. So that way the students can have a really good experience dissecting. Um, I also want to really push more, do more with the case studies. Um, I had a great case study last week uh, and my guys did such an awesome job. Um, I gave them a scenario. It was an unconscious patient and they didn't know I was, they didn't know I was going to do it. Um, I pulled them into a lecture hall and I said, all right, guys, go to the very back of the hall and face the wall. And I want you to see what's going on. And I pulled one of the students, I, I pre-programmed a student, had him lay on the floor, took all the equipment out. And I said, okay, guys, turn around here's your patient. What do you want to do? And they, they looked at me and I said, this is your patient. What do you want to do? Start to finish. And I said, I'm going to put pressure on you. And um, you might not like the pressure, but I want to see how you deal under pressure. Um, so they had to evaluate the patient. And in the process of evaluating the patient, um, I had a verbal cue that the student was aware. And as soon as they heard me utter their words, well, how much time do we have left in the period? Um, they vomited on cue. Not obviously not real vomit, but they they vomited, and um, the looks on the faces of the students was like it was was they were absolutely shocked. I said, "What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? He's choking. What are you gonna do?" They rolled him on the side and cleared his airway out. I then realized, okay, now we need to go back and relook his airway and make sure he's um, breathing adequately. So I really want to do more of that, um, but I'm torn between. I'm torn because it's like a catch-22. How do they know how to treat, how to evaluate and treat a patient if we haven't learned the basics? Um, so it's, I'm trying to cram basically three things into every every semester. Uh, the 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 basics, like the anatomy and physiology textbook, video basic stuff um, that most A and P classes focus on. They focus on that in dissection. They don't do case study. So I'm trying to do that, the case study and the dissection all in one semester, and I'm really struggling. So in the future, I'm really looking forward to somehow finding a balance where maybe I throw something out the door. Uh, maybe one of those three I really need to cut loose. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. So I'm constantly yeah. trying to um, constantly trying to find the right balance. Um, it's changed a lot. The course has changed a lot in 10 years. Um, I think it's, I think it's a really, really good course. It's a popular course. Um, uh, and I, I just want to simply make it better. Um, my mantra, I've got to make a banner, but my mantra, uh, Mark Reed is a physician on Twitter um, and his handle is uh, uh, medical axioms. Um, and so I want to make, I want to put a banner up and here's what he, he's got a statement. Here's what he says, uh, student, pass the test. You study to prepare for the day when you are the only thing between a patient and the grave. And that is so true. That is the mantra of my class. It's not about memorizing the book stuff, which you kind of have to do. It's not about getting, you know, A's on quizzes and tests, which, okay, fine. That's nice. It's about what do you do when somebody drops dead in front of you? You need to act. You need to know what to do. Or 
what are you going to do when a patient walks in the door and you're, you're a family physician and you have to figure out quickly, are they in congestive heart failure or do they have pneumonia? Because they have two totally opposite treatments and you treat them the wrong way, you're going to worsen their outcome. Yeah. So um, that's where I'm headed. Yeah, I think you're, you, you've, without saying it, you've hit the dilemma that I think that all life science teachers have, which is, you know, the content versus skills dilemma. Um, I think the way all of us learned biology or anatomy or the other things that we learned, we learned the first time we learned it, it was through the presentation of content. Uh, that I mean, that mm -hmm. was my experience. I'm sure that was your experience. Yeah, yeah but, me too. But then when you became passionate about the field of life science, it, you know, it wasn't because, you know, oh gosh, you know, it was really exciting. Page 330, <laughs> 332 of that textbook. <laughs> That was awesome. I loved that <laughs> diagram, you know, or that quiz. Oh, that was great. It was when you were applying the skills in a real world setting, you know, whether it's, you know, in the paramedic setting or, you know, for me at the lab bench, you know, that's when things cl really clicked for you. And so yeah. you're right. If you hadn't, if you hadn't been primed with the classroom stuff, you wouldn't have been able to do the paramedics. If I hadn't been primed by the classroom stuff, I couldn't have done the bench work. So now as we have aged, and the the information information age has taken over, and the amount of information in the life sciences has grown exponentially. We sort of have this this feeling like, oh well, there's now there's so much more information we can tell the kids, but we yeah. know that the skills are so important. And so, at what arbitrary point do we draw the line on the content to provide them the time to build the skills? And it, there are going to be some arbitrary lines in there. It's a tough, it's tough, uh, tough to make those decisions. What do you cut? What do you include? What do you focus on? What do you minimize? Um, one of the things I try to try to keep in mind always is, is it, if it's Googleable, maybe I shouldn't be spending precious classroom time teaching it. Whereas I can quickly flip that into a, a small five minute video lecture that the kids can read in the book, watch the video lecture and do that on their own. And I literally call it a check-in every day when I come in, we do a check-in and, um, we check in with last night's homework. If it's low level stuff, I'll say, Hey, do you guys have any questions? Nope. Nope. How, you know, and, and we'll, we'll move on. Maybe that's not the best. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's not the best way to teach, but I found that my students appreciate that I value their time and I value our time, our face to face time together so much so that I'm not going to waste it by giving them a bunch of stupid worksheets for lack of a better term. I mean, yeah, there's some worksheets that are, probably a value, but I don't want to waste time. I don't want to waste their time. I want to do the really cool stuff face to face because we only have 75 minutes together. And I really want to, I really want to give them like the best uh, learning experience possible in those 75 minutes. Yeah. That's, that's great. I think it's, um, you know, the good news also is you're not, you're not alone. Um, <laughs> there's a, there's an internet of people asking the same questions and, um, as I said, I don't think I don't feel like when I'm going at this anymore. You know, I feel I feel very much supported by a lot of other good people working on the these same questions, and you know, they'll probably answer them a little differently, but they're going to provide really good feedback feedback to me to help me uh, sort it out. So that's that's the useful part of that social media piece. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. So when you are not teaching and you are not saving lives as a paramedic, uh, what do you like to do in your downtime? I know that's a laughable. That's not that's not an actual thing because I do have two kids. But let's pretend you had downtime. Uh, what do you like to do in your, in your downtime? 
Um, well, actually, I'm a huge uh, spring. Actually, our family is a huge spring and fall kind of family. In winter, we tend to hibernate around the uh, the fireplace and uh, increase carbon emissions, um, carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, in the summer, uh, I pre I phew, other than going to the shore for a week uh, with our family, which is awesome. I pretty much loathe us uh, heat, humidity, sweating, and mosquitoes. <laughs> um, so I, I, I must be one of the few people that I really don't look forward to summer. Um, but when the weather turns nice, like, you know, in a few weeks, uh, we'll go camping, uh, love being outdoors, just going to the local state parks, uh, uh, riding bikes, uh, fishing. My kids enjoy fishing. Uh, I'm trying uh, for a couple of years. I've tried to fly fish. Uh, I'm pretty awful at it, but still. <laughs> Um, just standing out in the middle of a creek, fly fishing. It feels like uh, what's that movie? A uh, river runs through it. Yeah. Um, it just feels like just it's just awesome being out there. Um, and it, it's pretty much being outside. I just love like even just laying in a hammock, reading a book on a nice day under a tree. Um, work around the house as well. Uh, I think before before we um, before we <laughs> started talking, we uh, chatted a little bit uh, offline about. Um, about home improvements and I'll fix up the house five time. Uh, pretty much this afternoon is going to be spent redrywalling a wall. Um, <laughs> not something I really enjoy doing, but Hey, uh, it beats uh, paying a paying a drywaller and painter to come in and do it. Um, yeah. and it is kind of fun. It is problem solving. Um, so that's pretty much, uh, Oh, uh, kayaking. Yeah. We recently got into kayaking. Oh, really? uh, we bought an inflatable kayak. Uh, awesome. Oh, so much fun. Um, we have an inflatable kayak and it inflates in about 10 minutes with a, uh, with a hand pump, um, oh. comes in a big bag. You just throw it in the back of the car. Uh, 10 minutes later, we're at Cork Creek park or one of the local parks or even the, um, the, uh, Schuylkill river, um, higher up though, not down near Philadelphia because that's, uh, <laughs> not the kind of place you want to go kayaking. Uh, but it's great. Um, kids and I love kayaking. It's nice being out in the water. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I do a lot of those things. I was curious when you said the shore, where, where whereabouts do you go? Um, sea Isle City. It's Isle City. Um, south of, uh, I don't know if you know where Atlantic City is. Yep. It's it's southern Jersey. Um, yeah, southern Jersey. Yeah. For about the last, so well, my wife is from Jersey originally, so for, gosh, it's been probably the last nine years or so, we tend to go to Wildwood um, every year, so... <laughs> <laughs> I, I have actually never been to Wildwood. I'm probably one of the few people on the planet that's never been there. Yeah, we, I've heard about it. But I've never been there. Yeah, we're a little south of you, so uh, you know, Wildwood, and then we'll go over to Cape May a little bit if you want to go to the southern, real southern tip. Um, but, yeah, yeah. Here the shore. I just, you know, that's the the part of me that's I've been co-opted into Jersey um, <laughs> through marriage, <laughs> through marriage. So. I think all those. I haven't tried the. My problem with the inflatables is I. I think my kids when we do boating, they wanna they wanna boat and fish, and I always worry about the. Inf <laughs> I was like, no, we can't do both. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you gotta be careful with the hooks. Yeah, that's. I I can't imagine. I can't imagine that going well for us. So, yeah. <laughs> I've thought about it, but I think when we get a boat, I'm gonna have to get something that's a uh, that's hard, so that when we go out onto the the stream, we can actually fish with it. But. Yeah, my kids like it, particularly the younger. My younger kid and my younger son really likes the fishing. Um, both of them do it um, and both enjoy it. But as the older one has gotten a little older, I, th I don't think he enjoys the fishing quite as much as the younger one. Mm -hmm. So, all right. So uh, before we get to picks of the week, picks of the episode, uh, do you have any questions for me? Um, yeah. How'd you get into this uh, podcasting thing? How did you get to, uh, how did you, did you wake up one day and all of a sudden decide, hey, you know what? I want to interview uh, people. And uh, how'd you get into it? 
So yeah, I um I I've told the story a few different times. Um, this is like the probably the this is my most common question I end up getting. Uh, so I am a big fan of podcasts. I listen to a ton. Um, I think I last on my last check my my favorites playlist has over thirty um, that are in my queue uh, that I listen to. Most of those are you know, weekly or a couple of times a month. And I, I just listen to a lot. And then uh, a couple of conferences ago, I was at NABT and I, I was re- having a, a table. I was around a table with a group of people and I was like, man, I want to have this conversation all the time. I don't want to just, you know, go to the one or two, you know, conferences that you go to. And, you know, for national conferences, I go to a national conference, you know, not every year. Um, so I've, I've been going to them a little more regularly the last few years, but I wanted to have more consistent conversations like that, not the short conversation, but a longer conversation where you ask somebody about something and then you have the time to follow up and, and do that sort of thing. Um, and through a few different versions and and doing a little investigation um, throughout later the year, I I came to the point where I was like, you know what, I just got to try it. I just got to do it. And from a technology standpoint, it's easy for me to be a week, you know, twice a month plan it and then not have to have anyone else commit. I think if you have a couple of partners, you can have some great conversations in there. I think ideally, um, you know, one of my recent podcasts, I did a round table where I had Paul Strode and Lee Ferguson um, on, which was, which was awesome. I mean, getting those two brains, <laughs> you know, in the room to talk yeah. about stuff is, is just great. But, you know, respecting people's time and respecting people's commitment, I think um, it's easier to do it this way where I, I, it's me that is committing the time every week. And then I, I only impose on a person for, you know, hour, hour and a half, uh, once at a time. And, um, I, the way I describe it is I have learned so much this year by doing this. Um, and, uh, you know, I literally reached dozens of people, uh, with a, <laughs> with each episode, you know, my, my listening, uh, numbers tend to be between 80 and a hundred, uh, listens per episode. So, you know, not going to have a huge far reach, but, um, definitely there's people who've contacted me and asked me things about it, but I more or less have been doing it for me. You know, the conversations we've had today, they reflect sort of my thinking on on the topics that exist right now. I wasn't thinking about a lot of those things six months ago. Um, and it it helps crystallize my thinking about things. It challenges me on how I'm doing things to hear really good colleagues doing their work. Um, and it makes me a little bit more informed when I get to those forks in the road in terms of my own teaching. Like, all right, well, what am I going to do in the next few weeks and what should I do and what's the what's the more engaging way? And, you know, am I giving kids voice? Am I giving kids choice? Am I have I really thought about my learning objectives on this? Have I, you know, all of those things. It, mm-hmm. It's kept it a lot more on the forefront. I don't I think I've thought a lot more reflectively about what I do and how do I accomplish what I'm trying to do this year because I've kept these regular conversations up. Um, so it's been transformative for me. Um, you know, I, I've always said I'm committing myself to doing this for one year. Um, and, uh, I sort of see where I, where I sit. So I'll, you know, we're at episode 21. This is episode 21. And I've, so I've got three more that I've absolutely committed myself for. Um, and then I sit down and decide, is this, you know, something I want to try to do for another year? I, I did renew my website. So I, uh, I could, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, it's been, it's been really wonderful for me and I, I have made, um, some, some good colleague connections, uh, through this year. And, uh, I feel like, you know, sort of what you're saying online, I feel like there's a little community of people who are doing similar work and, uh, we've been able to engage in some good, really great conversations through it. So. Cool. That's, Thank you. That's the, uh, that's the short version. <laughs> so. <laughs> All right. So I uh, I know I sprung this on you sort of last minute, the last couple of days. Um, do you have any p- 
picks of the episode, anything recent or you know, news stories or resources that have grabbed your attention recently that, that are worth sharing out? Um, well, I'm not a really political person, uh, and I'm, I'm going to tread, um, I guess, lightly here, but it's, I've, it, it just seemed, it, it seems like the, um, the current political climate really isn't super science friendly. Um, so I'm, I'm a little worried that, uh, that, um, like the, um, that national institutes of health and actual uh that that these organizations won't receive as much funding um i've also been a little disturbed about um comments made um as far as maybe global warming uh maybe we need more evidence for global warming um those kinds of um yeah those those call those are great causes for concern in in my book so as far as like an actual a physical one uh, new story um, to point to, not really, but um, me causes me concern that um, science is science. It's pretty, at least in my book, it's pretty black and white. And if there's a gray area, that's where we do research. That's where we do experimentation. That's where we have good discussions, uh, international discussions and international um, research. Um, you know, that's that. That's the way I look at it. Um, it's not really. Um, uh, I guess gut instinct or, Oh, this is what I feel or, you know, or whatnot. Um, is that, yeah. does that make any sense? It absolutely makes sense. And I, I wonder just because of when this is going to come out, the March for science is going to be just the following weekend. So, I mean, I think the March for science sort of hits all those themes, the concern to make sure that, you know, when decisions are made, particularly scientific based decisions, whether it's, you know, climate change, global warming, whether it's, you know, uh, funding issues or, you know, even things like um, evolutions or evolution or vaccines, which, you know, to me really aren't controversial, but you can find areas where controversy comes up where, you know, I, I think that whether or not science is being given the proper place on the table um, for decision making is, is sort of what that March for Science is sort of all about. Um, let's not ignore it. So... Yeah, I think, yeah, I, yeah. Go ahead. No, I like. I, I would really, I really would hope that there'd be more research and development into alternative fuels or alternative energies, and less on, um, less on building more pipelines through pristine areas and, um, and potentially harming the environment. And again, propagating the fossil use of fossil fuels. Um, there's, there, you know, there, there are a lot of renewable energy excuse me, sources out there, uh, wind, uh, solar, um, and water. Uh, I, I really, it, it, you know, it really bothers me that there's not more advancement, um, uh, in those, uh, in those fields really, uh, like that really bugs me. Yeah. I can, I, I very much appreciate, uh, this. I think, uh, that's a common theme that people have been saying, uh, a lot of science denialism going on this past, this past year in particular. And it's not to say that there hasn't been science denialism going on for, decades um that we've we've seen crop up you know whether it was you know going back to the dover case or or things like that we 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 see science denial denialism rear its ugly head um every once in a while it just doesn't usually feel like it's got such a pulpit um you know like uh, the bully pulpit to 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 spout those ideas off and that that is definitely concerning um 
So yep. I will, I, as I said, I think because of the timing of this episode, it sounds, you know, I, I, the March for Science and when you read the mission statement, I think very much what you were talking about is encompassed within the, the March for Science um, idea. And that's going to be, as I said, this will come out the Sunday, Monday before the March for Science, which is April 22nd. Um, so the weekend that this comes out is also uh, the City Nature Challenge 2017. So um, this will come out, and if somebody gets it, the day it comes out, uh, they'll they'll hear this. Um, and this is being put on, um, and I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, City Nature Challenge is um, this basically uh, going out and doing a bio blitz. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with bio blitzes. Um, have you ever heard yeah. of those? So basically, a bio blitz is where groups go out and they basically document all the biodiversity in a given area in a set amount of time. Um, so I think the Christmas uh, bird count is something that a lot of people are familiar with as a, a form of that. Um, this is just not bird specific. It's everywhere. Um, there's an app called iNaturalist uh, that you can get where you can take pictures of things out in the wild. Um, and then they, those get uploaded into, um, a, uh, into a database. And then they actually have scientists check the the document check what was posted up and they vet it and if it gets vetted and checked by a couple of uh, reliable sources that will get dumped into the encyclopedia of life um so it's oh, a wow. it's a whole beast and so there's a, the city nature challenges where a bunch of cities i think it's something like 20 or 22 cities around the united states um are invested in this i didn't see philadelphia on the list when i checked um which i think would be your closest city uh but boston yeah. which uh my school district actually is inside 495 um and so it is uh it it is actually part of the uh city nature challenge uh grouping because you know there's like los angeles and san francisco and and dallas and all of the other, other places but uh, it's a pretty cool thing it's happening over my april break so my students are actually not going to be in school but um if you get this and uh you happen to have a sunday or a monday afternoon you want to pop out and you're in one of those areas it'd be pretty cool um i know i'm gonna practice around with iNaturalist because i think i'm going to use it with my students um uh particularly for the my intro bio kids who go out into the into nature and and uh i have them do some documenting of what's in some local conservation areas so that was a kind of cool nice little citizen science uh thing that's going to be very timely for when this episode comes out oh that's cool i just jotted it down i'll look into it yeah cool and as as i had predicted my dog came down <laughs> right, in the, <laughs> right in the episode so well chris i i told you this i i'm never under an hour uh so we're <laughs> we're at an hour and 15 minutes of recording time so this is this is what happens <laughs> okay. so uh i want to thank you again uh for joining me this has been a great conversation um so many good topics uh that have come up um so much to think about and uh i really appreciate you sharing your work and, and where you're thinking uh has has gone over the last few years and where you're looking to go so um thanks for joining me well, thanks, Aaron. It was really ni nice uh, being interviewed. Nice, uh, nice you uh, having me on on uh, on the air. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, great. So let's uh, let's wrap this up with my credits. Uh, the music on this episode and every other other episode is by Jank Jenkins and X Magicians. Uh, you can download this and every other uh, Life of the School podcast on any. Um, podcasting app you can get itunes soundcloud stitcher um, really any place uh, available you can also see show notes at lifeoftheschool.org um, and you can uh, tweet at me at mr matthew tweets or at life of the school uh, or you can tweet at chris which is baker h h h s is that correct 
H H H S. Yep. Three H's. Three H's. If you have questions or follow up or like to follow him, as I said, he's always putting really interesting stuff out there on Twitter. So thank you for listening and I'll talk to everybody soon. <laughs>